you know, the two popes was pretty cool, but you know what would be really cool? A billion popes. Greetings, friends. Welcome to We've Got Mail. Ah, uh, thank you, harpist. The uh, the harpist, uh, harpist, Harp- harpsichordist, harp player, harp player, <laughs> lutist. Uh, this is our letters episode where we take your your input, your letters, your suggestions, your topics for discussion, and do those things. We talk to you, we respond to your letters, and we discuss whatever topics you bring up. Basically, the other podcasts are ours, this one is yours. Pretty much. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold, I am a film critic for various facets of the internet when they'll have me, and with me as always is my scintillating co-host. My name is William Bibiani, I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. That's right. Except for me, I call you William. I right always, to your face. always torpedoes the intro of the, every podcast we do, but I'm sticking with it anyway because I got a stick, and when you got a yeah. stick, you stick with it. Pe- people call you Bibbs. I am no people. I just, I just came no, up I with just, you. Got a stick, you stick with it. I actually thought that was pretty clever, and like you gave me nothing. No, I'm, I'm not giving you that one. That one hurts. <laughs> well, in any case, uh, yeah. So I, you, I, you I email. Love, us. I love you, but your puns. Ah, this is where you email us, and you can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're pretty open. Uh, so ask us questions, ask for recommendations, recommend stuff to us, take us to task, um, anything at all. Yeah. Cor- and corrections, complaints, we take it all. And uh, let's just get started because it's your time, and we don't want to waste it. Yeah, here's, Whitney, who's first? Uh, here's a letter from Tom! Exclamation point. Hi, Tom! Tom! Uh, Tom. <laughs> Hello, Tom. Hi. Hey, guys. Uh, in regards to your recent mail podcast where you discussed warnings or approval of disturbing movies on a college syllabus, mm. I thought I would share my own experience. I studied film at Engli- and English at university, and one of our modules was American neoconservative crime films. Mm. We watched an array of movies starting from the 70s, Dirty Harry, all the way up to more recent films like Zero Dark Thirty. Along the way, we watched many films that could be considered disturbing, such as Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and Patty Jenkins' Monster. Our teacher, that those uh, are considered neoconservative. Yeah, I've got by that. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Our teacher did give the class a warning before each film and would encourage students to leave if they felt they might be offended or upset at what was being shown on the screen. I don't think anybody did leave, but... Uh, but as each student knew that they were in for, I think they were well aware that they would be seeing some disturbing footage. I am now a teacher in college, age range from 16 plus, and I've often thought about what may be considered inappropriate for some of my classes. I feel as though some films are quite horrific in tone and themes, a la Birth of a Nation, mm. but are quite important for budding film enthusiasts to see. Another example is some of the Nazi propaganda, revolutionary at the time, and I feel as though we could learn a lot from it as it had as an historical artifact. Is it wrong to praise these films for their technical achievements, even though they highlight disturbing messages? Do you guys have any conflicting thoughts about this topic? All the best. Tom! Exclamation point. Uh, that's a great question. Mm. And the problem when you go through the history of, well, anything really, but mm. let's just stick to art, um, is that art is the product of its time. And, uh, well, times are, are kind of racist and sexist enough as is. Mm. And the further back you go, the more open and wanton and more socially acceptable it was to be mm-hmm. racist or sexist or homophobic or any other form of socially unacceptable mm-hmm. belief. Um, so, yeah, oftentimes you'll watch a movie that you think isn't even 
controversial or problematic, and then all of a sudden something really racist is in it for like one scene, and you mm. realize that like they just didn't think anything of that. <laughs> that was just their daily life. Um, so I think when you deal with the history of any medium, um, context is always important. Mm. I believe you don't just say "Birth of a Nation," important film, helped uh, codify a lot of the visual language that we use in narrative feature-length storytelling. And you can't leave it there. Mm. You actually have to say, and also, spectacularly racist. Mm. You're going to see a lot of really disturbing uh, stereotypes. You're going to see uh, the Ku Klux... Blackface, yeah. You're going to see members of the Ku Klux Klan treated as though they're not bad guys, which is, of course, insanity. And we need to talk a bit about the historical impact this movie had. And actually... How it's been used by racist organizations Mm. as a way of... Uh, quote, revealing the true America about how the Klan was this heroic group of people that is needed in America and how racist groups to this day still latch onto this film as an exemplar of that. So when it comes to that, or when you're looking Mm -hmm. at the Nazi propaganda films like Triumph of the Will, Mm -hmm. which was an incredibly powerful uh, work of propaganda that uh, was presented to Nazi Germany and indeed elsewhere, it's just saying, look... Look how how wonderful these rulers are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And of course, it's all nightmarish and terrible. Um, These are films with enormous historical significance, not just artistically, but historically. Mm. And I don't believe that we should, you know, God forbid, destroy them or lock them away somewhere. But what I do believe is that it's probably the only sort of the, the sort of films that you really only need to see. If you're looking at history, oh, if it, you can only present them in an academic context now. Yeah, uh, I mean, not, you I can't think, just well, you can't just show them for fun. Yeah, like you can't, yeah. yeah. If you're looking at them um, for personal, mm. you know, research or for research within a college curriculum, then yes, these ones have mm. value, but they have to be presented. Well, they can't mm. just be thrust on a syllabus without any other additional yeah. information. Well, also, I think professors, teachers like you, need to uh, really be aware of. The political climate right now. Yeah, uh, it's not just a matter of putting them in context of their time for a quote modern audience. What is your modern audience thinking and seeing right now? Very much so. And uh, I think a lot of uh, modern campuses need to be incredibly ginger with uh, racist uh, material like Triumph of the Will or mm. or Birth of a Nation. Uh, because a lot of young people are seeing these things, and we've seen what what happened in places like Charlottesville, how a lot of college-age men are taking the wrong messages from this sort of thing. And I think we need to be stirringly aware of how those films are going to be taken in any context. You can intellectualize it all you like. You can try to take the curse off of it all you like. You can try to take objects lessons from it all you like but you could you're still showing a piece of racist propaganda to a world that is now unbelievably uh and disturbingly conducive to the messages that they're saying yeah authoritarianism um, is tragically on the, on the rise, rise. Rule, and that's not just america that's around the world and and, and but in public think, in a way yeah. which is very very creepy like people are mm. just flat out saying mm. authoritarian fascistic xenophobic racist mm. yeah, they're, they're, sexist terrible they're things taking that on as, as a very public philosophy and i think yeah. showing those sorts of films uh, in the context that naturally you, you assume your student body is going to reject the messaging might be considered a little bit irresponsible mm. if you don't give it a, an even broader, much more up-to-date, much more modern context mm-hmm. and how it's being used 
to this day in a racist way. I want you know something that I was thinking about is mm-hmm. um, I don't think I would ever show Birth of a Nation I've, to anyone really, but if I I've, did, yeah. I would never show it without showing Black Klansman first. Yeah, Spike yeah, Lee's yeah, Black Klansman is an ex. I'm sure you know this person who wrote this letter, but um, if anyone hasn't seen it, you should. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think it's one of Spike Lee's best films because it's not just a great crime movie about a black detective who actually went undercover in the Ku Klux Klan, mm. uh, but also uh, it's a work of really salient cultural and cinematic criticism in which Spike Lee actually looks at the impact that cinema has on the mindset of individuals, and he does that uh, by openly critiquing Birth of a Nation while yeah. watching white supremacists watch it and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, he has characters talk about the impact of even the black heroes uh, of cinema at the time when the movie is set in the 1970s, when a lot of black exploitation films were sort of leading the public conversation about black cinema, but maybe didn't actually have the best messaging about who is heroic in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really fascinating film. I think it really helps put that kind of thing in context, but yeah, I mean, listen, as I said, any older movies coming from a more racist, sexist, homophobic mm-hmm. time, and you might run into that anyway. But if you're going to show something that is flagrantly so, uh-huh. you have a tricky responsibility here. And I'm, I'll be perfectly honest here. I got through all of film school without anyone actually requiring us to watch Birth of a Nation Mm-hmm. Or Triumph of the Will. It was mentioned a lot, yeah. and we could watch it if we wanted to, but all the professors were just like, I, I can show you a clip or something, but you really don't need to see this movie. Yeah, like, yeah. we, we it, it's significant, but it's not necessarily what we want to do. But yeah. on the other hand, I also understand the argument for, in a strictly academic environment, we need to be able to talk about things that are troubling. Yeah, and and the well, and the power film has, yeah. and how this was used as a certain kind of propaganda. So it's a tricky conversation mm. to have, mm. and you know, Whitney and I have I our would, opinions. Other people mm. have theirs, and yeah after, well, yeah. after seeing Black Klansman, I announced on on this podcast actually that I was done with Birth of a Nation. Yeah, I, I don't need to. T- take from it all of these sort of cinematic lessons. First of all, a lot of the cinematic techniques weren't first used in Birth of a Nation. You can go to other films from the same era mm-hmm. that were using those same techniques. It was just a film that came out around that time that used a lot of them together. No, and so it was kind of easy to point no, to Birth of a Nation and just say, this one used all of them, so you just mm-hmm. watch that one and it's fine, yeah, but lo- it's actually not the best history. Uh, it's not the best of the media, I mean. Yeah, it's not even the best film history. You can follow the Twitter account, Movie Silently. Oh, has been ta- she's, talk- so good. she's been talking out very openly about how Birth of a Nation is has been misinterpreted by film scholars mm-hmm. about sort of its important importance in the film canon. If you and, if and you, about Griffith's attitudes and all the DW Griffith. If, if you're if you're on film Twitter and you follow a lot of film people, make sure you follow people who aren't just talking about like the contemporary stuff. Movie Silently is a great, mm. great, great Twitter account to follow because she constantly talks about silent cinema and sometimes you learn about films you never even heard of. But she's really phenomenal about. Uh, Showing how that era is really relevant today. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I learned a lot actually from following that account. And, and really not just awesome. in terms of like film style, but the attitudes towards film mm-hmm. and the, the themes and all the things that, that, that we think of are, are yeah. new and risque and crazy. And mm-hmm. I can't believe people are doing this today. You're being done in the 20s. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or earlier. Right. And um, yeah, really interesting, mm-hmm. really great account. Let's move on. Right, here's a letter from Eric. Hello, Eric. Um, in honor of the Irishman premiering this week, so this is a little while ago. A little old. Um, 
what uh, what are your guys' favorite really long movies? <laughs> I'm talking movies that are well over three hours. Let's say 200 minutes plus. Okay. Some that come to mind for me are, and here's some examples from Eric, okay. uh, Lawrence of Arabia, yep, of movie. course. Uh, Jeanne Dillman, of course. A film that uses its runtime to get the audience to understand the main character in a way I've never seen before or since. Uh, a Brighter Summer Day, which I haven't seen. Uh, mm-hmm. Edward Yang's epic about teens growing up in 1960s Taiwan. I've seen Yi Yi. But I've not seen a brighter summer day. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of your favorites, Eric from Palo Alto? Okay, well, I got to think about that a little bit. The first one that comes mm. to mind, and I don't have the running time in front of me, so forgive me if I'm a little off. But it's actually uh, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. All right, a lot of people don't talk about this one. It's considered, um, you know, when you think about Kubrick, you think about 2001 or Doctor Strangelove or The Shining, mm. and Barry Lyndon gets sometimes looked over a lot in his filmography. But I think it's one of his very best films. Uh, it's a story of a of a <laughs> frankly an idiot uh, yeah. who just sort of wanders through the sort of Napoleonic era, mm. um, doing everything he can in order to improve his station and uh, the way that fate sort of gets in the way of his plans. And um, it's an over three hour film that leads to a title card, which is so fucking funny <laughs> and I don't want to ruin it for you but you watch this whole movie and you're just like mm. and then the title card is basically just like but anyway like, yeah. it's so fucking great <laughs> um, and I love it because it's about the whole epic sweep of history and also mm. about how fleeting history really is yeah. um, it's gorgeously filmed it's a really great movie and yeah I think C- people C- need to talk about it more cynical in that Kubrick sort of way yeah. what about you, you got anything um, come to mind? the longest film I've probably seen is Shoah Okay. Uh, Shoah or Fanny and Alexander, which of the or I guess Shoah is like it's like a nine and a half hour film. Um, I've what, seen I've seen the long version of Fanny and Alexander, and I saw it in two sittings. I did break it up, um, but that's like a that's over five hours long. The original cut that was shown mm-hmm. on Swedish television. I think the longest film I've and, and I love it. I think it's great. Yeah, I'm not, and we're not talking um, about like oh, it's Twin Peaks is a twenty hour movie. Like no, we're talking about an actual that's movie. A, that's a TV series. Uh, I, the, I think the longest film I've ever seen uh-huh. uh, is probably God. Is it nineteen hundred? It might be nineteen hundred. Is that over four hours? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's. Uh, I think the longest studio film ever mm. released was uh, Cleopatra. I think it's, I would I think it's four hours and one minute. I it's think that's the longest. Movie. And I've seen that one, and I like it. I especially like Ryan <laughs> McDowell in it. I like it for how clunky it is. Oh, uh, Cleopatra is just Hollywood excess yeah, in this, every this conceivable big, gigantic way. gigantic melodrama with some quite good acting, yeah. but yeah, it, it, it kind of runs out after a while. No, no, it's just, it's just um, so... It, you, it's like watching the Roman Empire collapse. Like it builds itself, <laughs> it's bigger and bigger and bigger, and then all the pillars fall. It's I like the movie a lot, but yeah, it's, it's way too big. 1900, on the other hand, I, I'll say this, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's 317 minutes. Alright, that's it's about five hours. It's about five hours. It's a really five, long like, fucking yeah. movie. It flies. It is Wait, such... 1900 is five hours? Yeah. The original version, yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know there was a five-hour cut of that one. Yeah, right. it is. And, I, and uh, memory right. stars have watched it. Um, I think I watched it with Dave White, actually. Oh, okay. um, And it is... It's it's about the friendship of two dudes, mm. and they get involved in political conflicts, and their lives intertwine around each other. Mm. And it's actually it's so long; it's actually hard to figure out like what's the actual through line because you just get so much uh-huh. context. But it's beautifully filmed. Okay. It's a really astonishing motion picture. Oh, but yeah, it's a day. It's a long day. Like it's a you sit down with the full length version of 1900, mm. and you're just like, all right. 
I know what my weekend is. There's a a movie coming up um, that I watched some of the preview. They released a preview. Mm. Here's to give you a a good idea as to its length. The preview is four hours. (laughs) They released a four-hour preview. (laughs) Oh, oh gosh. Okay, that's fucking funny. (laughs) Oh, I think it's a Swedish film. Oh, I need to look it up. That's hilarious. Yeah. I think some samurai's over three hours long. Mm. That's that's, uh, it's, that's a it's, time. It's coming classic. out this year. It's called Ambiance, or Ambiance, perhaps. Um, and it will be the second longest film ever made. Wow. Uh, which will have a 30-day runtime. Wow. Which is why you can see why a preview would only be four hours. It's a, a, a one single film that runs a solid month. I would not mind taking double shifts at my movie theater if I could go in and just sort of trade hands and project this thing it comes on like 700 reels or whatever oh my god um yeah December it's gonna come out on December 31st 2020 we'll have a running time of 720 hours man and it will be screened globally uh I really hope I can see that I wish I had the kind of time required for some of these long films because, like, I, I tried to see La Flor and I just couldn't find... That was a film that came out last year. It's an Argentinian film. It was 13 and a half hours long. And um, I kept saying it was 14 and a half hours. It's 13 and a half hours. Uh, and, yeah, I just could sadly could not carve up enough time out of my week so I could sit down and watch this 13 and a half hour film. I'm a big fan of what some people call slow cinema. That is... The kind of film where the the camera movements are very slow, there's not a lot of edits, there's not a lot of action, there's usually not a lot of dialogue, because those films have an uncanny way of not just presenting a slow story, but slowing you down. Yeah. And that is vitally important. I think so, Like because uh, we, we talk about, we've talked about this before, how... Mm. Um, Movies are one of the few art forms that require you to engage with them over a specific length of time. Yeah. You can't just look at a painting and then look away whenever you want. Like, if you want the movie, you have to experience the movie within mm. a specific set of time. And as a result, you are on the movie's wavelength and, and speed. Yeah. Unless you fast forward it, I suppose. But, mm. yeah, if a movie actually gets you to calm down and to adjust your timeline to fit the way that that movie experiences time, that can be a really beautiful thing. Mm. Actually, I just remembered one that I've never seen but okay. Alonzo Duralde has been raving about this, and I've been wanting to see it for oh, forever. Uh, the Clock. The Clock, yeah. He, uh, Alonzo Duralde is the only critic I know who actually saw all of The Clock. It's and, a 24-hour film. And you have to do it in shifts, because mm. it's really, really, really long. Well, because the, the idea is... And it's it's not so much a film, it's more of like a, a big uh, editing exercise. It's like a Mondo film. It's an experimental film. Yeah, yeah, where they essentially... It's just footage from other films, and I think this is why it hasn't been widely released, because they have to license like, all the hundreds of films that they quote. Yeah. But uh, evidently it takes footage of clocks in other movies and is able to construct a 24-hour day using just mentions of time in other films. So, for example, like, if you're watching a movie and someone walks by Big Ben and mm. it's 4 o'clock, that's a scene or a shot that they would show in the clock mm. at 4 p.m. And yeah. then if there's another scene somewhere else in another movie where someone well, it's is... 401. Where it's 401 and you see it on a digital clock or someone as someone checks into work, that scene shows up at 401. Mm. And they do that for every minute of every of a whole day and that's really a fascinating idea Mm -hmm. isn't it i mean it's it's a non-narrative experience but 
the way Lonzo Duralde has described it to me it makes it sound really hypnotic, and I really yeah. want to well, check that out sometime. It, it's a film that is telling you about its own passage as you're watching it, yeah. which is not something a lot of films do. Uh, I mean, some films take place, you know, sort of real time, like 1917 is more or less real time. But, but uh, even then, like, you're not supposed to, like, think about <coughs> the passage of time. It's like when you're in a Vegas casino, uh-huh. the lighting is always the exact same all times a day. And they don't want you to think about how long you've been there mm-hmm. because they want you to get comfy and spend money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of movies are the same way. They really don't want you to think about, God, three hours I'm watching this fucking mm-hmm. thing. But some movies do and this one's really comfortable with it apparently it's such a fascinating idea yeah I wish yeah. I'd thought it's one of those things where I wish I'd thought of that <laughs> yeah, like, know, god, that's, that's, god that's clever well and you can do it for like you can see somebody in college doing that for like maybe 30 minutes yeah, but yeah not not for 24 straight no, hours what, a, what an ambitious thing um, okay. I well, have not seen Out One I know that's a famous one mm. it's from the 70s uh, just a, a 12 like a 12 or 13 hour film yeah uh, I think uh, in recent years there have been a lot of films in other countries that have been really kind of playing with that. Um, mm. Lav Diaz as uh, a I think a Filipino filmmaker. Mm. Um, look up Lav Diaz. Okay. Yeah, uh, Lav Diaz is a film, Filipino filmmaker, mm. and he is. I think his shortest film is just over four hours. Mm. Oh, a uh, love exposure is crazy long, isn't it? I love exposure is about four hours long. Yeah, I actually never saw that. And I feel bad. I love that, I love that filmmaker. Yeah, uh, Sion Sono. Sion Sono is a genius. Um, oh, I just oh, I had another. Oh, yeah. uh, Hamlet. Brannis Hamlet. Brannis Hamlet and, um, is really long and totally yeah, amazing. I, I, I think it's exactly it's like one minute shorter than Cleopatra. I think they made a big yeah. deal of that at the time. It's, oh, like, so it's the longest Hollywood film. No, we're one minute shorter than Cleopatra. <laughs> <laughs> but, Hamlet you know, is like, gorgeous. Again, Hamlet is. I wish they would do every Shakespeare movie like this because the, yeah. Shakespeare has such beauty and poetry and depth and breadth of his language. Even when he's telling intimate stories, like uh, um, uh, what's the the angry guy on the beach, um, <laughs> t- Timon of Athens, uh, <laughs> aka angry guy on the beach. Uh, That's the like, tagline. For the even, movie. <laughs> even the intimate stories have such grand language yeah. that you. I, I feel like. You need to slow the film down and let the language just play. It's okay to have a Shakespeare movie, not even a theatrical experience, a Shakespeare movie where the characters are just allowed to revel in that language and recite. And I think a lot of filmmakers are afraid of that. They're afraid of slowing the camera down or just letting the actors play. Well, in the original production, the mm. the actors weren't like They would just step to the center of the stage and recite a speech. That's true, but they wouldn't do it slow. It's, no. there's, there's, a, there's an audience right there that needs to be entertained so they would be speaking at a bit of a clip which was easier at the time when My point the is, words that Shakespeare to... was using were, were common vernacular mm-hmm. as opposed to now but you don't need to cut all that stuff out and do a lot of edits oh, to make that exciting but yeah I think uh, what Kenneth Branagh did was what I th- I think give that play its due. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll, there had been previous film versions of Hamlet and you know, plenty of stage productions who gave it its due but this was the first uh movie that took the entire text, put it on screen, mm-hmm. and kind of gave it the breadth that I think that story requires. A, a lot of people love Much Ado About Nothing, and they mm-hmm. should. It's a great movie. It's great. A lot of people uh, really respect the shit out of Branagh's Henry V. It really mm-hmm. announced him as a significant filmmaker. It's also uh, very good. But there will come a day, sadly, and I hope it's a long, long time from now, when Kenneth Branagh is no longer with us, mm-hmm. and when that comes, the movie everyone's going to be talking about, holy fucking shit, mm. can you believe he did this, is Hamlet. Is Hamlet, yes. And I really do think it is... It's, it's the best Shakespeare movie 
period. I actually uh, agree. It's, yeah, because it's, it's there's there's competition, but it I do yeah. think it's number one. <laughs> like the 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 um, 1936 Midsummer Night's Dream is that, right the, up the there. The 36 Midsummer Night's Dream is really really good. Uh, Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. He's still he was a, standard, a creep, but yeah. the movie is fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's yeah, kind of the standard version of that work. Uh, yeah, Brown is much ado. Yeah, one of the most delightful, just joyful movies you'll ever see. That's that's not a long film. Uh, we're on a tangent, there. but I think there's a lot but of Brannis, great movies. Yeah, Brown's Hamlet uses time to its advantage. It does have an intermission. Uh, I don't count stuff like Lord of the Rings as a single film because they were intended to be released separately. However, the extended editions of all of those are over three hours. And I would argue mm. that the Two Towers extended edition is the mm. one extended edition that is genuinely a better film. Than the theatrical cut. Yeah, I think the theatrical cuts of the other ones are better paced. There's bits in the extended versions that I wish they'd left in just because they make that make a little bit more sense mm. or that that's clarified a little better. But the Two Towers extended edition is a way better movie oh, okay in general than the actual theatrical release which i also quite like okay. but if i was watching the two, the lord of the rings movies again mm-hmm. i'd watch theatrical fellowship extended two towers theatrical return of the <laughs> fair yeah and i think if you get like those gigantic box sets you get yeah. both cuts i think you yeah. do yeah you should anyway yeah, yeah. it's been a long time since i, I bought I, those. I, I, in fact i think i might still only own lord of the rings on dvd it's been a long time since i've had uh, I saw those in theaters. I tried on video. I'm like, no, I can't. I just, I, I don't want to commit to this. I, I know you're not as big I'm not a fan of those movies, I, I think the Lord of the Rings movies in particular are brilliant. Right. But okay, let's move on. We've this, okay. we went anyway, on a long tangent. Lo, uh, if you like long, long, slow cinema, to borrow Dave White's phrase, it's not Dave White's phrase, but I, I got it from him. Yeah, uh, yeah. Look up Lav Diaz and a lot of films okay. from uh, from Asian nations. They're really sort of doing a lot of interesting things with. Uh, slow cinema and extended storytelling mm-hmm. that's really out there that is you know goes beyond you know your typical Hollywood epic. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's uh, let's, get, what's our next letter? Uh, here is one. Um, this one comes from uh, Brian, who also calls himself Royale Knife Thrower. <laughs> nice. Hello, hello Royale. Is, is, knife that, is that your jellical name? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Your scientists were so thinking whether jellicles can and jellicles do, they didn't think if jellicles should. <laughs> Not my joke. That's Johnny Jungle Guts. Um, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. My hi. name is Brian. I'm a big fan of you guys on both the Schmodown and on your film reviews. Thank you. Although I don't always agree with you, I find your opinions encourage and challenge me to dig deeper into my analysis of what I'm watching, and that has helped me fall to in even deeper love with cinema. Oh, That's the highest you. compliment That's we can receive. The Thank best compliment so we can receive. We don't want you to agree with us. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't mind if you agreed yeah. with us, but that's not the point. Yeah, We're yeah. not here for to be agreed with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, over the last year or so, I've gone on a cinematic journey through the decades, starting with the 70s and continuing through the 80s and 90s, where I would compile a rather long list of movies I've both seen before and haven't seen mm. to develop my critical eye a bit more and write reviews on my social media to create some more entertaining discussions with my friends and family. Awesome. I then went back to the movies of the 1930s, and I'm currently in the 1940s. With those movies in particular, I found it difficult to separate my reviews of a movie from my 21st century slash, quote, woke views and perspectives regarding social issues such as race, gender, sexuality, etc. Movies such as Female, Gone with the Wind, Freaks, and Red-Headed Woman come to mind off the top mm-hmm. of my head as some examples. I do my best to keep in mind the era in which these movies were made and to not let it influence my opinion of the movies, but I don't always succeed. After all of that, my question is, how are you two gentlemen as film critics able to separate your perspective on certain social issues from your analysis of movies, especially those made in the 70s, 70 or 80 years ago. If it, if is, is it even really possible at all? Are there any movies 
I found it especially tough to do so. Sorry for being long-winded. Uh, I'm going to be able to join the Patreon soon. Keep up your good work. Cheers, Royale Knife Thrower. <laughs> Thank you, Royale Knife Thrower. Uh, that's a great question. We already talked about it a little bit when we talked yeah, about well, Birth of a Nation, but I do think this is a separate issue overall because we're not talking about teaching. We're not talking about necessarily even the ugliest examples mm-hmm. Of old cinema, well, where they were flat out, flagrantly mm. racist, sexist, awful. And as I mentioned then, there's a lot of movies, you'll watch them, and then all of a sudden there's just one scene that's really racist. Mm. And you realize that we're not talking about racism because these movies are almost all exclusively about white people. But there's a really decent chance that in all of these wonderful old movies that we like, a lot of the characters that we like are probably really racist. It just mm. isn't coming up in conversation. Mm. And... Boy, is that an ugly thing to think. You'll notice they're not mentioning uh, people of color a lot because there are no people of color around. Isn't yeah. that weird? Yeah. Uh, so it's just yeah. not coming up. But then every yeah. once in a while, he'll just... I was, I was watching some Fred McMurray film where everything was fine, everything was fine, and mm. then he had like a valet who was yeah. who was not white, and he just said something really terrible to him. Yeah. And I'm just like, dude, what the... I, well, now I hate your ever-loving guts. And <laughs> you, you were not going to get me back. Um it's it's difficult to perhaps enjoy those films on the same way, and you do have to keep in mind the era in which those were made. A lot of films are perfectly delightful, but yeah, have that one like one racist scene. Like there's there's mm. uh, Swing Time is an excellent film, but there's a blackface number. Yeah, it's yeah. it's awesome dancing, but he's in blackface, and that's just not cool. It's, yeah, and not it's cool not at cool. All. And I think if you're wise enough to understand that those films are being presented to you personally within context, and when you have those conversations, if you can sort of amend your conversation to say, this comes from an earlier era when views were different, uh, then you can have a much more intelligent conversation about the good things that those films were doing, like the great dancing, like Mm -hmm. the good storytelling. Uh, I thought it was really actually responsible of Warner Brothers when they were releasing all of those box sets of their cartoon shorts from the Termite Terrace, uh, to present... Uh, they, they were keeping a lot of the more uh, controversial, racist, controversial yeah. and racist cartoons out of the sets for at first because they thought little kids were going to be buying them, but then they realized people like Leonard Maltin and, and cartoon scholars were buying these box sets. Yeah. So they realized like about the time they got to volume three or four that they could say, look... Through some of these ima- these images, uh, we're going to present these cartoons uncut as they were presented to you in the 30s and 40s. That means there's going to be racist images. To ignore that these films existed and to withhold them from the public is to pretend that those attitudes never existed, and that's even more irresponsible. Yeah. To pretend that we didn't ha- that there was no such thing as racism, mm-hmm. and that there is no such thing as racism. That's wrong. Again, so but they they're, what they're doing though is they're presenting them in context. Exactly. That's so the key thing. I think. Y- when you're just watching the film, you have to bring that context to it. And if yeah. you see something that's really shocking in an otherwise not shocking film, or you see one that's just outright shocking and racist from its core, like Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. uh, then it's actually your responsibility to do the research and do the homework and maybe talk to others about it who might yeah. know about it and not just sort of walk away, dismiss a film outright. Uh, because it doesn't match modern values. Because no True. film, no film does. No, I think that's we fair. were just watching the Police Academy movies. Those were made only only about thirty thirty five years ago. 
those are horrendously racist. Yeah. But at the same time, those also address racism in a way, but then they go back and are racist to another group. Yeah. Uh, you can't, yeah. you can't start like the, from... the villain. The villains are racist in the first movie, but then there's a racist caricature in the third movie. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of mixed messaging. Um, there's a tendency, I think among some people to think that in order to enjoy a movie, that was made in an earlier era or was made with an attitude that we would consider mm-hmm. today uh, backward or offensive or just outright horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, that in order to appreciate that, you just have to just sort of accept that, oh, it was the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, first off, people were complaining about this shit at the time. At the time, yeah. People do not mistake just because there are racist movies out there, like really racist movies, like outwardly racist movies, that everyone was fine with that. There Mm. were protests at the time. There were protests of Birth of a Nation. There were protests of, even when it first came out, of um, uh, Song of the South. Yeah. That was actually, we didn't talk about it a lot because it was a more racist time, and that didn't get a lot of traction Mm. in the media, but these were actual conversations people were having at the time. So when you're thinking about, oh, I'm bringing my modern context to it. No, that's the original context. That is okay to think about in conjunction with these movies. It is okay to say when you watch a movie that in many respects is well-crafted, this is in such poor taste that I cannot enjoy it. That is fine. Mm. That is 100% of fine. And we're not going to ask you to. No, no, I'm not going to ask you to do that at all. I'm not going to ask you to, well, you have to admit so-and-so is good in it. No, it's okay to just say it's in bad taste. Yeah. That's Fine, and tastes change over the years, and things that weren't considered to be in the worst possible taste, and movies that were considered classics are now considered to be in shockingly bad taste, and they're not classics anymore. That is an organic part of art history. It really is. Tastes and values evolve, and Mm -hmm. they should evolve. So that is 100% okay. And they do constantly. We've said before on this show, we we are saying things that we think are are enlightened now that are going to seem backward in 40 years. Yeah, we're going to be, maybe everything we've said on this podcast will be considered horribly backward. We're trying our best. Mm. But even so, our best isn't necessarily going to hold up that great. Yeah, yeah. So... When it comes to watching, and I and I respect the hell out of you for going back and trying to educate yourself on all these different eras of cinema and thinking about these complicated issues. Mm. These are tough issues. We wrestle with them ourselves. We do a, a Patreon-exclusive podcast called Only the Best, in which we are reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. Mm. Many of them are very famous. Some of them are new to us. And they're actually like, they're just kind of forgotten by history. They're little footnotes... Yeah. And the Academy Awards history books. But then you watch them and go, oh my god, this was amazing. Or, oh my god, this is shockingly racist. Mm. And, like, Traitor Horn was just disgusting. <laughs> like, a, just a reprehensible yeah, just motion colon- picture. Pro-colonialism and you can racist wa- movie. And we're watching, and we have to talk about it in context. And we have to say, like, okay, listen, there's a certain element to this sort of... Uh, wilderness photography that is mm. actually very impressive, but in the end, I give no shits because the movie is insanely racist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a there's a something I've been thinking about where um, um, it's like a it's like a shame watch, mm. not a hate watch where you watch it because you hate it so much, but mm. a shame watch because there's a movie that maybe you watched when you were younger and you didn't realize how negative it was, and rather than just pretend that all of the ugly things don't exist. 
you just let both things exist simultaneously. Mm. I like the things I like about this. The things that I don't like about this no. are really fucking bad. Well, and I, like, they're uh, both accurate at the same time. A, a movie I loved as a, a, a raunchy comedy when I was young, before I, I saw it when I was too young to have seen it, was Revenge of the Nerds. Yeah, great example. I thought that was a hilarious movie, and we quoted that amongst ourselves when we were like 10, and this thing's yeah. like full frontal nudity. Very we immature. Have seen that movie. Yeah, it's an immature film. Uh, and there's a lot of, you view that through today's eyes, and it's full of sexual assault. Yeah. The the heroes, like, plant cameras in the girls' dorm and just spy on them openly. Grotesque yeah, criminal behavior. Like, yeah, no, there's, there's, no, unforgivable. Yeah, like, un, yeah. not a good thing at all. Um, that said, I still like it better than Animal House, where I think those people are just monsters. But uh, they're all monsters. <laughs> the, whole, the, whole, monsters. the whole early college so comedy yeah, genre is pretty gross it, in a lot of ways. It's hard for me. And I, I can go back and watch uh, Revenge of the Nerds, but I'm enjoying it differently if I'm even enjoying it at all. I'm watching it on a different level because... I'm viewing it through the view of the person I've become, the person I was, and the changing views of what was considered to be comedic in film. Yeah. You watch that film, it's like, wow, that this is. I can see how this f- translates to comedic language of an er- another era, yeah. and the, how and, that was once seen as fodder for comedy. And there are brief bits yeah. that are actually like, okay, like that whole musical number they do. The musical like, number, that's yeah. Fine. There's some things that are completely inoffensive. And, yeah. Uh, the, the stuff that's actually just sort of straight up gross, like getting drunk and falling off a tricycle, that's funny. Yeah. Uh, the belching contest. Belching is, contests is are funny. Ki- kind of universal. Yeah. That's uh, that's pretty harmless, all things yeah. considered. And and I understand if you grew up with Revenge of the Nerds, you can watch it now. But I don't think in order to it, it, watch it now, you need to suddenly, for the next well, two hours, I'm going to be okay with all the horrible shit. I think, no, you can reject the horrible shit, well, I think but a you lot just of have this... to acknowledge that it exists simultaneously in the same mm. space with something that you admittedly mm. like. If I can expand on this point a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. There's... Uh, there's something that's going on in film fandom, mm. which I think is affecting this conversation. And I think it's that this notion that if you are a film fan or a fan of a particular film or a fan of a particular film series, that uh, that, that is a permanent state. Mm. Uh, I see this from like, from like fans a lot. It's like, oh, well, I'll see it because it's Star Wars. Well, what if like the last eight Star Wars films aren't good? Yeah, what's your or, cutoff? There's got to yeah, be a line somewhere, we're, we're, right? And, and this is a conversation I've had with my wife a lot. She's a big rock snob. She collects, you know, albums, and she has had to come to a point in a lot of her fandoms with like some of her favorite musicians. When do you stop buying their records? Do you buy all of their records out of some kind of obligation, or do you just stop at some point? I stopped getting They Might Be Giants records. First really? Of all, first of all, they're really prodigious. I can't keep up. And, uh, <laughs> Secondly, they're not doing it for me anymore, and, and I realize that I can just sort of let They Might Be Giants go about their career, enjoy what I have, and just sort of end it myself. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people don't want to let go of a fandom because mm-hmm. it, feel, it feels like a personal failing. Well, they're, they're, they're a, lot use, they're a lot of people are yeah. their fandom with their own personality. Exactly. Your own sense of think, identity is wrapped up in artwork yeah. someone else makes. And, and I think a lot of people who are going to defend raunchy comedies, I've done it. We just did a Police Academy podcast and I defended <laughs> those movies, yeah. even though they're offensive. Uh, <laughs> are sort of trying to keep a certain kind of way of thinking about those movies. They are classics in that canon. And decanonizing a film is more difficult than we think. It's, no, it's tricky. Like, can we ever decanonize Caddyshack? First of all, why did we canonize Caddyshack? <laughs> 
We're alone it's on that. It's everyone Caddyshack. else, everyone but us, <laughs> thinks Caddyshack is this unassailable, perfect classic. We're the only yeah. the makers of Caddyshack two agree with them. They don't agree with us. <laughs> it's so weird. But yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Like it, it's tricky, and it happens kind of organically over time. Yeah. Um, it's but, interesting to watch. Like a lot of people like have been writing these articles about how millennials are going back and watching James Bond movies, and they're finally. horrified, and they should be. Those movies have always been sexist. There's some really yes. gross shit. There's some great, sexist and often really here's, racist in some of those. And, and here's what I've discovered in my own going back. I'm looking at some of these comedies, and I'm taking a lot of them straight. And then you watch like a, a comedy like, say, Casino Royale, mm. or a lot of Mel Brooks films, or I'm sorry to bring up his names, but a lot of early Woody Allen. He's part of the conversation. Sure. Um, and you have to sort of realize that irony existed back then, too. Yeah. And a lot of the tasteless humor wasn't necessarily played straight in some older movies. And you have to put yourself... You have to watch a lot of films from the era to get a bigger context of what a lot of these jokes were trying to do. Yeah. Some of the more, quote, offensive movies or sexist movies like Casino Royale were actually sending up sexism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that does You can try to send or, up something yeah. and end up just doing that thing, it's though. True, That's it's possible, true. It's because, yeah. true because when you're sending something up, sometimes it just looks like the thing. Yeah. There's a scene right now, just to get to that point. Yeah. There's a, Some people are putting this one scene from Jojo Rabbit uh-huh. Like out of context, hmm. and it's just the scene where the kid is psyching himself up hmm. by saying over and over again, "Heil Hitler." Yeah, and in out of context, that seems really offensive and weird. In context, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, because yeah. it's a kid who doesn't know what he's saying. Mm. Out of context, yeah. Mm. So like, context is a thing. So yeah, context so. is a thing, and, uh, yeah. and be sure when you're watching some of these old movies, a that. Uh, not to sound like I'm forgiving bad behavior, but some of them are trying to send up the attitudes that that it looks like they're just condoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's also possible to watch these movies, enjoy them, but you do have to sort of put some distance between yourself and them, which means you, you yes, you are enjoying them on a different kind of level. Right. Uh, and that's also possible. Again, I think the important thing is you're saying to yourself, do you need to like change your perspective yeah. on these films and try not to be, you know, as uh, modern in your thought and philosophy, you you really don't have to. Yeah. These things, it's not one or the other. It's not binary. Mm. It's not like, I accept everything this movie is telling me or I reject everything it's telling me. You can reject this part mm. and you can enjoy this part to an extent if that other part wasn't so bad it ruined the whole movie. And that's okay if it does. Mm. You are not obligated to enjoy every movie that is presented to you as a classic. You are not obligated to keep up some sort of canon as history goes along. It is okay to even reject the things that you like. I remember the first time I saw I said to myself, I have like half a season left in this show, mm-hmm. like five episodes. And I don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> you just like, turn it off. True yeah. Blood, I was with you for so long, man. But halfway well, through season, like the last half, season, yeah. five fucking episodes. I could have done it in a weekend while I was doing something else. And I was like, you know what? I don't care anymore. You've ruined it. <laughs> true Blood, you ruined yeah. True Blood. I And honestly, I didn't even think that was possible because yeah. the show wasn't that great to begin with. But wow, did you fuck up. And I felt like a more mature person for being able to just say no. The same thing happened with me and the new Doctor Who. 
They, yeah. they restarted Doctor Who in the mid-2000s with Christopher Eccleston. It's like, oh, I've heard a lot about this. I'll give it a shot. Oh, this is a nice, intelligent time travel adventure show. Yeah. I like this show. And I watched it for three, four, five years a while. Yeah. Uh, all the way through uh, Matt Smith playing the Doctor. Yeah. And uh, like partway through the Matt, Smith, Matt Smith's run as the Doctor, I realized I had lost interest. Yeah. It's like, I don't, want, I don't need to see any more of this. And I just stopped. And all of the Doctor Whovians were like, why, why did you stop? Why Just keep on going. It gets better. I'm sure it gets better. I've lost interest. At some point, you just don't have I to just, finish it. I don't, like I, I don't be feel one, obligated you, anymore. If you reviewed Matt Smith's run on Doctor mm. Who, you would be obligated to finish yeah, that's, that's it. That's but professional if it's, if it's just for your own personal mm. enjoyment, it's okay to say, mm. I tried it. I wasn't into it. Thank you. Yeah, and, and I'm a little baffled by people who say, oh, what do you think of Star Wars? I love them all. You love them all because Every the holiday one. special is in there, and yeah. and that Han Solo movie. I love the Han Solo movie. Cool your jets a little bit. It's okay if you <laughs> it's, do. It's, yeah, if like... you do, it's fine. I'm not not here to piss on anybody's yeah. parade. If you legitimately lo- love it, I'm not telling we're, you not we're, to. We're, but... we're we're going off on tangents yeah, anyway. again. Anyway, yeah, you don't yeah. have to turn off your brain or your mm-hmm. modern perspective in order to enjoy older movies, but context is always important. Let's yeah. move on. Uh, here's a letter from Carlos. Hello, Carlos. Hi, Carlos. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, I wanted to start off by thanking you two for being well-versed in all kinds of films. We try. We really try. Thank you so much. Uh, I've checked out films I never would have thought of because of you, uh, because of you two. Herschel Gordon Lewis is wild. Yeah! <laughs> and I love B- Blood Feast and The Wizard of Gore now. Yes. Nice. Thank you for checking out Herschel Gordon that, Lewis. That's, oh, and that's mostly you, too, because I'm a late uh, yeah. I'm a late uh, subscriber to Herschel Gordon Lewis. Oh, God, Lewis. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a big champion of Herschel that's, that's that's really awesome, man. Good for you. Yeah, I'm I'm dealing with a bit of a conundrum. Okay, I bought the Ingmar Bergman Cinema Collection from Criterion during one of their flash sales. Oh, I'm so jealous! <laughs> I don't have that box set, and I want it. Um, during one of their flash sales earlier this year, and I've only gotten around to seeing his first film, Crisis. It's pretty intimidating trying to decide on one between the. Uh, of the 40-plus movies in the collection, especially with Bergman being one of the most prominent figures in film. Where do I start? I wasn't a fan of Crisis, but apparently even Bergman wasn't a fan of it either. (laughs) I read that The Seventh Seal is the best place to start, even though it's probably as most well-known to general audiences. I really appreciate the help. Thank you, Carlos. I'm going to back out of this conversation because (laughs) I've seen way less Bergman than Whitney has. I've only seen a handful. Sergio's okay. seen more. He yeah. has opinions, but unfortunately, I don't speak cat. <laughs> and, and even I'm not a, a deep dive expert into Bergman. I, you know, yeah, I don't I've think seen, you've seen everything. I haven't seen everything. I've seen close to half of his movies. But that's pretty uh, good. That's pretty that's good. More than most people, yeah. I think. Um, where do you start with Bergman? A lot of people say The Seventh Seal because it's one of the more accessible. Yeah, it's, and, like, it's and, got and, a fable-like it, quality. It, it translates uh, yeah. beyond it, it's, cultures. Yeah, it, it transcends cultures, it has a period setting that's easy to understand, and it has sort of this fantastical conceit mm-hmm. that lends it a little bit of uh, philosophical weight that's easy to get your fingernails if you're If anyone listening is unfamiliar with The Seventh Seal, mm. great movie. Uh, it is about a knight in the Middle Ages uh, yeah, who just, is... Just old, after the Crusades. Just after yeah. the Crusades, and death comes for him. Says, your De- time, death, death is a physical figure on yeah, the screen. The Grim Reaper, yeah. he says, the time has come for you to be dead. Mm. And the knight is... <laughs> and they're all played by Eddie Izzard. No. And the knight is just like, well, I don't want it. And Death is just like, well, you gotta. And the guy's just like, I challenge you to a game of chess. And Death's just like, okay, but I haven't lost a game of chess since time began. Mm. When was that? I think it was a Tuesday. Not everyone knows that. <laughs> Animaniacs reference. Um, Seventh Seal is, is an art house movie that is so ubiquitously known. They're like gags on Animaniacs all about mm. it. Um, so he's playing chess with Death and his 
mortality is on the line. And as they play chess, the game that they play... Well, he ends up... He, like, leaves the game from time to time right. and have, like, a lot of side adventures. There's a bunch of other characters. But the, and- the characters are basically... They're all kind of pawns in Death's game. No one can escape death. Mm-hmm. Mortality is a fact of life, and everyone... They, they run into serfs and merchants mm-hmm. and everyone. They all... Are sort of they view death differently yeah, yeah. and are coping with their mortality in different sort of ways. Yeah, yeah. It ends in a beautiful image. Yeah, there's, there's uh, it's a, a hell of a movie. Yeah, and a, a lot of people like to recommend that one first because of that accessibility. I can't. Yeah. You can't recommend something like Shame uh, <laughs> right away because that's a that's just despair and misery. And Ber- Bergman dealt with despair and misery very vividly, very uh, openly. Um, Luca, get off the counter, buddy. Unless uh, you got some Igmar Bergman ideas. <laughs> Uh, from what I understand, that box set is actually set up in a really fascinating way because it's, I think it's two films per disc, and it's not presented chronologically, which we would expect from a big box set like that. Um, Are they thematic? Uh, they're, the, yeah, the two that they put together tend to be sort of thematic pairings. That's interesting. So I think that the Criterion Collection has already curated that set for you pretty well. Interesting. Um, where do you start? Like um, if, you, if, you, if someone was brand new to Bergman, mm, Whitney, you're in charge. Mm, they just come to you. We'll watch whatever you want. Where would you suggest they start? Okay. Um, that is a tough one. Through a Glass Darkly? Okay. Why? What is it um, and why? Gosh, teach, uh, teach, yeah, teach. Me. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to like dive into through glass, through glass darkly. Um, through glass darkly was the first part of what some people call the Silence of God trilogy. Through glass darkly, Winter Light, and the Silence, and it was a series of films where Bergman was sort of grappling with his own ambivalence about God and faith. Uh, he, his father was a minister and was also very abusive, and so as you can imagine, that kind of soured him on it. Uh, ideas about God and religion. And yet he still would fall back on this idea that there's something definitely in an ecstatic sort of way there. Uh, it is just silent and it's indifference is frustrating. And this, these are like big ideas of philosophy and the meaning of life and the meaning of death and faith and God. And I feel like through in through glass darkly, which is just about sort of uh, people interacting on an Island and uh, kind of how they're coping with, uh, the the breakdown of one of the characters and the mental illness of one of the characters, and how uh, sh- she presents uh, death as sort of being a spy or God as being a spider. That there's this sort of malevolence to this whole thing. Mm. Uh, I feel like that's a good way to get a good idea as sort of his locations, how he writes dialogue, what his characters are, and gives you a good, uh, rich taste of his ideas and the things he'd like to explore throughout his career. Okay, uh, I think his best film is Persona. Uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to start you with persona just so you can save it off a little bit and savor it when it gets there. Because mm-hmm. you, but when you're in Bergman's mindset, I think you can kind of appreciate that one a lot more deeply. Well, I actually think that's true for a lot of great prolific filmmakers. When you're introduced to their filmography, mm. you don't just want to watch all of the films that are considered their classics right off the bat. Uh-huh. Um, because it's possible that there are other films, which may be interesting in different ways. Mm. Um, you'll suddenly start like watching all those films and go, oh, they're not as good. Mm. So I recommend... <laughs> you don't start with the best, yeah. No, I recommend starting with something... Generally speaking, I recommend starting with something accessible. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I typically like to recommend kind of going around that in sort of a spiral. Uh-huh. You know, like if, if someone had never seen a Scorsese movie, mm-hmm. like I'd probably say, why don't you start with Goodfellas? It's considered right. like the er example of Scorsese. Mm-hmm. 
And then from there, I'm going to take you all the way back to Main Streets. And you can see, like, how early and sort of unpolished he was, but how all the ingredients were there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then maybe I'll take you all the way to the Irishman, or maybe from there we'll start playing around a bit. And I'll show like, but also he can be really playful and weird, so Mm -hmm. let's watch After Hours (laughs) or something. And then from there we can start Mm -hmm. going into, you know, maybe something like Cape Fear or something even more Mm -hmm. crazy. Or we can do something that's, I, I consider After Hours to be kind of an existential film it's all about the existential horror right. so from there we can look at yeah. some of his spiritual movies like the silence or whatever but anyway uh, but yeah uh, when it comes to Bergman uh, be sure I mean there's so many great films to, to recommend if you're just gonna go if you have that box set just go through that box set mm-hmm. that that box set is pretty much an education in a box uh, <laughs> yeah and watch it in the, the order that they recommend on those discs because from what I understand they, mm-hmm. they kind of are, are jumping you back and forth in a way that lets you know the filmmaker's mindset better than his evolution. I'm a little frustrated by a, a base chronological view of, of film history. Mm, you have uh, to because, watch it in chronological order. Because yeah. that's not the way film ideas work or evolve, and it's not the way films relate to each other. Films with very similar ideas can come decades and even, even a century apart. Right. Uh, and I think pairing ideas and looking at different views of certain thoughts and techniques and philosophies is a better, more critical way of viewing cinema than just starting from day one and going through. Because you start from day one and you go through... It'll take you forever to get to some of the places that these movies go. Exactly. And also, you're watching everything out of context, and you'll only see them in context with each other. And that's, I think, kind of a very limiting view. It's like showing a a double feature of just two directors, like... uh, one director's two films just putting those two together it's Mm -hmm. like well now you're just getting to know a director and how those two films from the same director relate to one another I'd rather have something a little bit more uh, broadly thematic mm-hmm. and see like what this director was doing at the time and what like another crime I, movie I, from the time. I wouldn't say that there aren't pairings uh, from one director that would be interesting, but I see your overall point. Yeah. yeah. Um, Pro- programming is a form of criticism, is my point. I agree. I agree. What yeah. you put next to each other and what you choose to show first mm. can have a profound... It's like an appetizer. It has a profound impact on the main course. Exactly. If you're doing it right. Mm. Um, so, yeah, excellent point. Right. Um, anyway, again, I'm not a Bergman fan. I have very little to contribute to this other <laughs> than thank you, Whitney, for having the expertise to help someone through that. Okay. Um, here's a letter from Anna. Hello. Uh, hello, Anna. Dear Bibbs and Whitney, I just wanted to add something to your wonderful Rene Aubergenois obituary. Oh, that's oh, nice yeah. and uh, very sad still about Rene Aubergenois. Luca, get off the table. <laughs> Luca wants to talk about Rene Aubergenois. Uh, that's actually Odo. He's in disguise. Oh, that would be cute. Uh, I just wanted to add something to your rene- wonderful Rene Aubergenois obituary. Apart from all the other amazing things he did, in the last years he was also supporting uh, Madison Sans Frontières, MSF, the mm. Doctors Without Borders. Yeah. Um, at Star Trek conventions and cruises, he was drawing. Uh, he was drawing quote Odo's bucket for fans for something like <laughs> ten bucks. Put money in Odo's bucket. Oh, oh, that's adorable. That is adorable. Good for him. Look, if a Rene Aubergenois comes up with me, comes up to me with Odo's bucket and say, "Hey, want to give money to MSF?" Yeah. I do. <laughs> they don't even need a bucket, yeah. Renee. Well, whatever. Just he, yeah. he's nice. Yeah. Luca, uh, you're, you're back on the table already. For something like ten bucks, cheaper than a regular autograph. In any cases, he donated all the profits profits to MSF. Uh, someone from his entourage, uh, in the case of Star Trek: The Cruise Three, it was his son Remy, took a photo of the Trekkie with the drawing. Oh, to the drawing. Uh, you can see a complication in all these photos. Uh, it, 
You can see all of the photos on uh, Renee Obergenois' Instagram account, um, and she puts a link here. Okay. I'm sure people uh, He can will find be missed that. so much. I'm so happy I got to see him and get my bucket. <laughs> <laughs> That's to lovely. Fi- and to finish off with an, a, a classic quote, I always investigate Quark. <laughs> Signed, Anna. Um, yeah. Uh, Such a big fan. I, I, I love that, I, love I that always man. Ad- I always admire when... Uh, no matter what the motivation is, you see some celebrities, they get so rich, they get bored and they don't know what to do, so they start a foundation. I don't care what the motivation is. They started a freaking foundation. Yeah, it's and fine. When they it's get good. Involved, uh, it's if, in theory, anyway. Yeah. And they'll always say, oh, you know, celebrities, f- political pet projects. So what? Look, if, dude, They're if you have money for charity. If you all of a sudden have yeah. a lot of money and a lot of time... Oh. And you don't put it to some good use, th- then who's the real asshole here? <laughs> like, oh my god, I can't believe they're going to talk about politics. Well, what do you want? To just ignore the fucking world and be rich and out of and you know just sort of estranged from it. Yeah, well, well, they're not here to like entertain you. They're, they're, they're a person with interest. Like, if they're in a that, movie, yeah. yeah, okay, fine. The movie is whatever the movie is, political, apolitical, mm-hmm. whatever. But like, oh, there's no such thing. But you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. overtly political or not. Uh, but like when they're not like actually performing, they're people. <laughs> they're human beings mm-hmm. with like thoughts and opinions and lives and loves and flaws and and dreams. And a lot of them are trying to do nice things. And a lot of them are also assholes. But mm. sometimes they're both. Yeah. What are you going to do? <laughs> like anyway, celebrity culture is all fucked up. Oh, just the way we view celebrities. Um. If you buy the Shout Factory Blu-ray of Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, ah. there is a preview for a documentary on that Blu-ray. The documentary itself is not finished, but there's a preview for it uh, called Finding Freeman, which I'm in. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm in the preview. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I was interviewed for uh, the film Finding Freeman. Whether I make the final cut has yet to be determined. Mm-hmm. But it's all about... Uh, it's funny, is that you're more famous now than you were when you filmed Yeah, it's got a little, little odd. I actually yeah. have more clout now. And now I'm gray and have a beard. I was clean-shaven at the time. Uh, but it's about Eric Freeman, the actor from Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2, and how he came to internet fame, uh, which is different from regular fame. Because uh, <laughs> you make less th- money. Uh, through the Garbage Day meme. You remember mm. the Garbage Day. Garbage Day is a famous sequence from Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. And, and it makes as much sense in context as it does out of it, which is why it's kind of perfect. Yeah. It's just yeah. a guy taking out his garbage, and then it cuts to this dude, and for no reason he says, Garbage Day, and then shoots him. And, and that's in the middle of this big kill sequence where he, like, he strangles his girlfriend and hooks up a guy's tongue to a car battery before that. That car battery kill is way more interesting. But yeah, yeah Eric Freeman, the actor, his delivery, Garbage Day took the meme world by storm and a lot of people started quoting that meme the film didn't become famous but the meme did yeah and so these people film was awful by the way it's not oh, even the, fun no it's 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 at least 45 percent footage from the first movie oh, i'd say more um, than that but uh the people who were interviewing me for this were trying to track him down because he became so, sort of suddenly internet famous and he didn't do a lot of acting beyond Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. People were wondering, who is this mysterious Eric Freeman? He, he didn't show up was, to yeah. claim his internet fame. Yeah, and people like, were wondering, why didn't he show up to claim his internet fame? And my, In the interview, I said, well, first of all, it's possible he's not aware of his internet fame. He's not running in the same meme circles as you guys. Uh, and also, there's this idea that if you are a film actor and you achieve some sort of fame, that this is now a permanent status in the eyes of the public. You are now a movie star, and 
the instinct I think most people have would be to ride your stardom as far as you can and mm-hmm. be famous for the rest of your life. People on the Some outside looking in yeah. assume that's the thing because they mm-hmm. all they see is the fantasy. And the reality yeah. is, even if it's great, I'm not saying it is. I know mm-hmm. sometimes it can be really horrifying, but even if it's great, it's not for everybody. Well, also, you can just decide you don't like it and move on and do well, something uh, else. Yeah, some some movie stars like being movie stars. Some movie stars are a little frustrated by their fame because they would rather be seen as like artists or actors. Mm-hmm. Daniel uh, Day-Lewis yeah. gave up acting for a while to be a cobbler. Yeah. He just yeah. cobbled. That's it. Made shoes. I, I I wonder if like someone like Tom Cruise, like if they get frustrated by their movie star status, because Tom Cruise plays a pretty much a Tom Cruise like character in all of his movies. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're there to see him. He's a great movie star. Whether or not he's a great actor can be debated. Hmm. I think he's a good actor. When he gets I, the chance, yeah. I think he's really good, actually. Yeah. Uh, I think he's excellent in Collateral, and I think he's excellent in Magnolia. Mm-hmm. And I think he's really good in Tropic Thunder as well. Born on the 4th of July? Yeah. He can really actually I actually haven't seen Born on the 4th of July. Been a long but time yeah, I think, he, I think he's capable of giving really great performances. Um, but yeah, this idea that movie stardom is uh, this permanent state that you need to pursue is something that I think a lot of, no, quote, non-stars don't necessarily understand, especially in this era of sudden YouTube fame, sudden Instagram fame. There's such thing as an Instagram influencer. They don't do anything. but They, they influence. They, what? The market. That's all they influence. Yeah. People give them products and they say, use this product. Luca, get off the counter, buddy. They're non- Stop influencing the counter, Luca. <laughs> they're, they're non-contract advertisers is what they are. Uh, but yeah, th- this... Uh, Anyway, it just yeah, it just goes back to that idea that Eric Freeman didn't. Maybe he didn't want the fame. Maybe he didn't pursue it by choice. He's under no obligation to follow what you what you think a famous your, person. Your to career, do. the yeah. career path you would want, isn't necessarily. There's a great line about mm-hmm. that in Little Women. Just because mm-hmm. I'm going to butcher it, but just because my dreams are are not your dreams doesn't mean they're any less valid. Yeah, yeah. you know, like mm-hmm. it's fine. I want different things than you, and if he wanted different things. If you wanted to go cobble somewhere, (laughs) more power to him. Anyway, we're off topic. Let's get to another letter. I think we have time for one or two more. This one comes from just the letter B. Hello, letter B. Hi, B. I'll read the letters just to reiterate. I say this every episode. I'll read whatever you sign off as. Your name is in the subject line, but I'm not going to read that. So if you sign off as the letter B, that's who you are. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, today marks the beginning of a journey. I tried as best as possible to wait until the new year, but I guess I'm starting this resolution early. This letter came in in uh, December. Okay. Uh, My goal is to write you guys 100 letters over the next year. Jesus. You're under no no obligation to read any of them on the podcast, obviously. I only wish to continually keep myself in a positive mindset when it comes to discourse on the critical analysis of films. Sending my thoughts and questions to you rather than just writing them in a journal, it gives me incentive to hold to that ideal. Thank you for indulging me. Of course. Okay. Um, On March 18th, in episode 69 of Critically Acclaimed, Whitney Seibold reviewed An Elephant Sitting Still. Uh, My attention was immediately captured and my quest to find and watch the film began. In July, I found that it was on a British streaming service, but it turned out you needed a UK credit card to rent it. Oh, that sucks. It came out later that month on DVD, but a DVD that only works with Chinese DVD players. Oh my god. Finally, in the past two weeks, it came out on digital in the US, and this evening I finally saw it. An Elephant Sitting Still is my favorite film of the year. Wow. Uh, Blowing The Farewell, Booksmart, and The Lighthouse all out of the water. This film is gorgeous in every respect. Not once during the three-hour and 50-minute runtime did I feel tempted to pause it or even look at my watch. Upon finishing it, however, it physically hurt me knowing that this was the final work of Hubo, the director. It feels the equivalent of Kubrick having passed away once completing, upon completing The Killing. This film, I believe, represents uh, the counterpoint to my favorite film of last year, You Were Never Really Here. 
Mm. Both are masterful explorations of depression, each have incredible endings, and each represents the side of a, one side of the coin. You Are Never Really Here explores the many forms of violence that depression brings into your life. Watching this film that last year reminded me of how I felt two or three years ago. I am... I'm glad those days are behind me. AESS, an elf and still, on the other hand, explores the quiet fog that depression can bring and how it can be nothing more than the slow draining of desire from your life. I'll quote Whitney's review of the marriage story here. I, I went in wanting to be de- devastated and I wasn't. <laughs> Instead, I found an elephant sitting still to be liberating. The kind of, this, this kind of depression is what I'm going through now. And my emotions were being played out, being validated on screen. It was incredibly cathartic. Well, I'm sorry you're going through depression. Everybody does. It is well, just sort of a, a part uh, of the human condition. Uh, 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 I'm going to stop right there. Everyone mm-hmm. does. Not everyone suffers through clinical depression. Oh, that, that's like true. Of the varying range of emotions, that's part of the human experience. But mm-hmm. clinical depression is its own yeah. journey, its own uh, thing to wrestle with. I wrestle with it a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were never really here, really spoke to me. Okay. On those levels, and I recognize some, mm-hmm. you know, really upsetting moments that okay. I've had in my life where I was like, yeah, okay, I've been there. That, that one nah, sucks. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that's not necessarily the same thing. Okay. Um, no, however, no. Um, these kinds of movies exist to be discovered by people who can connect to them very deeply. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm glad yeah, you have. I'm, yeah, well, uh, clinical depression. Seasonal depression, just general despair, I think, is still something that you can see, find, explore, and uh, reflect upon through any of these movies. Yeah. Anyway, Um, uh, um, B goes on to say, this this letter has run way too long. I promise this will be the exception and not the rule. I'll end by, one, thanking you guys for doing the great work you do, as it has unquestionably changed my life. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And two, reminding everyone that there are resources for anyone experiencing mental health issues to please, please, please seek them out if you need them. And three, asking, actually asking a question, who are some other filmmakers that were gone too soon and because they never had a chance to build up their filmography are often overlooked and deserve a shout out? Thank you. And see you on the next one, B. Um, Okay, well, first off, uh, I second all of those thoughts about uh, if you have any Mm -hmm. uh, mental health issues, sometimes it's difficult to recognize Mm -hmm. when we have mental health issues because a lot of mental health issues tell us that we're seeing the world as it really is and not that we're seeing the world through the veil of a symptom of depression Mm -hmm. or anxiety or any other number of uh, really difficult things that we can live through. So mm-hmm. um, there are lots of different services that can be used. Um, sometimes you can find, uh, if you can't afford uh, therapy, mm-hmm. if you can't find a, there are a lot of, there are a lot of teaching hospitals where you can speak to people who are training to become therapists. And that can be really uh, a lot less expensive and very effective as well. I just, I learned about that and I think that's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, First off, I want to say thank you to B uh, for making us your Mr. Henshaw. <laughs> I don't know if everyone gets that, but when I was a kid, there was a book called Dear Mr. Henshaw, uh, which I think was, was it Beverly Cleary who wrote that. But uh, it was. Um, I couldn't say. I can't remember. It was about uh, a young boy uh, who. The entire book was it was an epistolary. It was all a series of letters. It was the first epistolary I'd ever read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was all letters that a young boy wrote to his favorite author. And the author wrote a kid's book. And he wrote the first <laughs> the first letter in the book is Dear Mr. Henshaw, I read your book. I licked it. Thank you. It's, <laughs> it's all typos and everything. Yeah. It's all in there. And then as the kid grows up and it takes him through like high school, he writes more and more letters to Mr. Henshaw. And we only see that one side. Mm-hmm. And it's just that sort of 
I don't know. It's, it was a really fascinating read. Mm. Uh, so the, that you're using us as your Mr. Henshaw is actually really flattering. <laughs> uh, we'll try to read if you if you keep this up, uh, and I have no doubt that you will. But you know, I know mm. life is hard. Well, uh, we've, we've actually received other letters since then. That was just the first one. In say, the we'll, series, we'll try yeah. to read some more. I don't know if we'll read all 100, but we'll try. Mm. Um, that's really that's really cool. Mm. I think it's really awesome. <laughs> and um, uh, who knows? Maybe you can publish them someday, and that can be your dear Mr. Henshaw. That could be really cool. Mm. Um, and Whitney, uh, what are some thoughts on some filmmakers who were taken from us way too soon? Which really aren't they all, but you know. <laughs> I know some maker, some filmmakers just keep on making movies when they ought to stop. But uh, well, that's a matter of <laughs> Kevin Smith. Um, but oh, uh, shush. Kevin Smith clearly ran out of things to say a while ago. I, as much as I defend, I'm one of the only defenders of Yoga Hosers. I think that's actually a rather amusing film. But clearly he's just messing around at this point in his career. Mm. I think uh, he's just got... He said what he had to say, and I, I think he's found much more uh, much more peace and happiness doing lectures and having conversations and doing podcasts. I think making films is such a tertiary uh, interest of his now. But yeah, filmmakers who perhaps died too early or had big... Uh, Fossbender... I'm not um, super familiar with his work, but that's a great example. Rainer Vander Fossbender, luckily he was so hugely prolific that he like made three filmmakers' filmographies in his career, but he died at a pretty young age. Um, let me look up how, how young he was. Um, yeah, Rainer Vander Fossbender did uh, Marriage of Maria Braun, Ollie Fear Eats the Soul, Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, uh, Fox and His Friends, uh, Love is Colder Than Death. He did a lot of really, really wonderful very uh, why does hair are run amok? Uh, some uh, Berlin Alexander Platz, for God's sake. Mm-hmm. A lot of really interesting, very deep, uh, emotionally fraught films about the war, about sexuality, about everything. Um, if if you ever get a chance, be sure to watch All That Heaven Allows and Ollie Fear Eats the Soul back to back because that's like one of the per- perfect double features in the world. Um, yeah, he he died pretty early on, and I think he. I have no doubt that he would have just continued to make movies. Uh, uh, another example. Uh, yes, he was thirty-seven when he died. Uh, I re- I remember when this. Yeah, he died of an overdose. The filmmaker who was better known as mm. an actor, but she had just started uh, to make acclaimed movies, and then she was really brutally murdered in like a totally weird mm. altercation with a neighbor. That's just you read about it; it's baffling. But it's Adrian Shelley. Uh, who was oh, yeah. yeah well recognizable as a character actor, and she had just made uh, her film Waitress, mm-hmm. uh, which starred Carrie Russell and Nathan Fillion, and got really good notices. It had since become a Broadway musical, um, and she was just breaking out. She was just yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, finding her voice, finding her people, starting to acknowledge her talent, mm-hmm. and just boy, that sucked. Yeah. Um, perhaps one of the more famous examples uh, is Jean Vigo. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. Jean Vigo was uh, a really influential uh, French filmmaker, even though he died very young and had only made, I think, two features. But one of them was a film called La Talante, mm. uh, which o- is about, often on best ever lists. Yeah, a lot of people consider it one of the best movies ever made. Not actually one of my favorites by any stretch, but I get it. Mm. Um, and it's about. Uh, a, a young sailor who marries a woman, and she lives with him and his very boorish shipmate on a boat, mm-hmm. and she's just unhappy because <laughs> that sucks. It's a not a it's not a really thrilling life. Um, it's it was very influential. It's it didn't come to mind initially because I think La Talente is famous at least among film scholar circles. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah, he, he died rather young. You look at a lot of the lists of. Um, 
filmmakers who died too young, which again I would argue is most, if not all of them. Uh, a lot of them were just like, and, he, and they died at fifty, having only made five films, that, and that, that's, that's that's a pretty good career. I think a lot of people would be proud <laughs> to have made, you know, like oh, you look at uh, Eisenstein died at like fifty years old. Yeah, Eisenstein did a lot. We we know who Eisenstein like, is. He died yeah. way too young. No one's denying that, yeah. but he accomplished a lot yeah. in his career. Um, so or, I, I'm not since, like I said, Fassbender, but yeah, Fassbender directed like forty movies. Very he, prolific like, in his like, in his short time well, on this earth. Pasolini passed away due to violence, and yeah. uh, but also he's very pa- prolific. But he's also Pasolini. We know who he is. Uh, yeah. Um, so it's it's an it's an interesting. Prompt. I, I would it, have it, to do a lot more research yeah. into this. I think in order to give you. The yeah, best Jean, answers in the spirit of the question. Yeah, Jean Vigo is a good example. Adrian Shelley is an excellent example because she was taken from us far too early. Yeah. Um, the circumstances of her death are horrible. Yeah, just. Uh, but, but yeah, um, and, and and Hubo I think is, an, is another one because Hubo yeah. made this wonderful, complete, like deeply insightful film. It was on my list of the best of the year. And uh, and is now gone, and that's yeah. really a pity. It is. Um, let's 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 do one more. One let's, more. let's take us out on one more. Letter. Okay. This one's from Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. Uh, and this is this is a brand new letter. Came in two days ago. Ooh. Uh, dear Benjamin Whitney, this is just a letter with a couple small corrections. Oh dear. I noticed in episode one hundred and six of Critically Acclaimed. One, you mixed up Nat and Alex Wolf. We I did. did. <laughs> yeah, I know. I they look alike. <laughs> they look so much alike, and they're both really yeah. talented actors. Nat Wolf is in Paper Towns. Alex Wolf is in Hereditary. I'm I, and, I, and, Juma, and the new Jumanji. I I yeah. Sorry. I fucked up. I'm sorry. I I do that all yeah. the time. This isn't like one of those like Dylan McDermott Dermot Mulroney things where mm. their names sound similar. They're, they look exactly alike. They look alike. Like one of them has like a birthmark. Well, I think yeah. or like a Al- freckle. Or a, she says uh, you can tell the difference between them because Alex has a mole okay. on his nose. Alex. Don't get that mole removed. How dare you? <laughs> for, for this, for don't you ever. <laughs> and 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 Nat, don't you ever add a mole. <laughs> don't ever just take a Sharpie oh, God, and just do that. You would be a monster. He'd, he'd do that just to screw with us, wouldn't he? Yeah. Do, actually, do that. Screw with us. I'd, I'd prefer you do that. <laughs> so, yeah. Totally. Uh, yeah, I'd screwed up. My bad. Uh, two, during your discussion of Black Christmas, you referred to the uh, girl's lost item as a D-cup. It's actually known as a diva cup. We got that the terminology wrong. And for those who don't know, okay. it's an alternative to pads and tampons that can be inserted into the vagina and catches the blood and other materials that occur during menstruation and can be poured out. It's more eco-friendly and it's reusable and doesn't create waste. Uh, uh, I knew I, that, so either I misspoke dramatically or I didn't uh, hear you right I and, yeah. I, and I didn't think the correct because I thought you said it right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I I know about diva cups. I've I've heard a lot of people swear by diva cups, yeah. and they are environmentally friendly. Yes. So, um, so thank you for that. Obviously, thank you for obviously them. we misspoke. Mm-hmm. Um, our bad. Yeah. Elizabeth says that's all. <laughs> Thanks for podcasting. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you so much. We always want to better ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently, uh, when I was talking about uh, Dora the Explorer, uh-huh. I think I miscredited somebody. Hang on. Oh, a you second. want to correct yourself here? Yeah. Let me like make a, sure. I, uh, it, uh, like an, an actor or the screenwriter. Yeah. I think. Um, who did I say? I think I miscredited someone else as Ava Longoria. Ava Longoria is in that film. Oh, okay. Not whoever I said. All right. My bad. Um, but yes. Uh, let's do one more. That was really short. Okay. <laughs> well, that was super short. Let me get the letters back up. Uh, I sorry about that. Okay. And here is... Uh, so, we, we, took, we took some time off. Let's, let's make a... All right. Um, this is uh, from uh, Candid Canadian Cam. Not Candid Cam. Okay. Canadian Cam. Hello, Canadian Cam. Hi. Uh, dearest Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. <laughs> And it's spelled M-C-K-U-H-L. McCool. McCool. How's that for a spelling? Uh, 
There was a story fairly recently from mid-December 2019 about how the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, uh, that is the state-funded media company in Canada, aired Home Alone 2 on their family network, but with some edits, primarily the removal of an impeached president. Uh, (laughs) Ah, I dream about the removal of an impeached president. (laughs) Here in America, we're we're working on it. (laughs) We're trying so hard. Anyway, sorry. Uh, but but the, the, <laughs> the pale man from Pan's Labyrinth is in our way, and we can't get past it. Um, it made big news here in Canada, so I'm curious if it made way to your various social media timelines. Uh, it did. It I remember really did. reading that story. Uh, yeah. CBC put out a statement saying that in 2015, they had edited the film and removed about five minutes of footage from the movie, including the cameo. It's back in 2015. That was before yeah. he was president. Uh, I'm all for removing footage of said impeached president due for the millions of people he has affected negatively. But on another hand, I also appreciate films being aired as close to the original release as possible. I'm curious about your thoughts on TV edits of movies and the like. Uh, thank you for taking the time to read my letter. I hope it finds you well. Sincerely, Canadian Cam. I love TV edits. Uh, TV edits are a weird, weird thing. Um, a lot of times what would happen... Okay, A lot of people might not even really think about this. Before Cable... And at least before cable was... Before streaming, there was cable. And before cable, there was network TV. (laughs) Yeah, and network TV was concurrent with cable. It's still around, obviously. But back before home video was a big deal and everyone had a cable movie channel or two or Mm -hmm. everyone had a VCR... the best there, way to see movies in your home was through just regular TV broadcasts. Yeah, and there would be, like, the Sunday night movie, and they would just show a, a movie a, a with commercial breaks, film, yeah. a usually pan and scan. Um, sometimes the movie itself was never widescreen, so it's not a big deal, but mm. usually crap for your TV. Yeah. Um, and that was the best way to see a movie if you missed it in theaters. Uh, problem is... Most movies don't fit into TV time slots, yeah, or if they, they do, they might, they start, might f- start and end programming on the hour, and films aren't exactly one or two hours. And indeed, you don't even want them to be that because you want room for commercials, which are mm-hmm. how you make your money if you're a network t- uh, uh, television. Uh, if, if you're a television, <laughs> if you're you know, if you're a television, uh-huh. uh, if you're a TV station. So what would happen is there'd be two things that would happen. They would cut stuff for time. Sometimes this was relatively straightforward because there'd be parts of the movie that they would cut anyway for content. The scene was so violent, they trimmed it back and because you couldn't just have it on network TV when right. all the kids are watching. Sometimes bits with language or sexuality, you just trim them out, boom, no one's super happy about it, but it was the best they could do at the time, was their best compromise. Another thing that happened sometimes, though, which I really thought was funny, was sometimes the movie was too short. And well, so they had to add in deleted scenes they, in order to yeah. make the movie fit the time slot. What they did, like some movies, yeah, were so crass that if they trimmed out all of the crass materials that the FDA was not approving of, the FDA, not a vote, not an elected body, by the way, um, just there's my political comment. Yeah, they would trim the, all that stuff out, and yeah, now the movie didn't fit neatly into any kind of time slot. This happened to me with Blazing Saddles. Mm. Do you ever see the TV edit of Blazing I'm, Saddles? I'm sure I have, but I don't remember right now. Blazing Saddles is a, a, a beautifully crass movie. It's got a lot of really offensive stuff that they just sort of shaved out. But in order to fill the time, they actually had to add stuff with, like, Mongo. If you remember the Mongo scenes, yeah. where he comes into town and he's just sort of causing havoc. Candy Graham for there Mongo. Is, there's this really bizarre portion, which is something out of a Warner Brothers cartoon, where Sheriff Bart tricks Mongo into putting on, a like, a diving suit and diving down into a well I do as remember like a this. tourist trap. It's I like, do hey, remember this. Put on a diving suit. Have a good time. And there's an underwater scene 
where he says, well, you have to pay me all of your money to put on this diving suit, and you have to pay for the air I'm going to give you, and if you run out of air, you got to pay extra. Yeah, I definitely remember Mongo and in a And he runs out suit. of air, and he, while he's underwater in this diving suit, like, a little sign says, you run out of air, give me some money, and he, like, puts money on the sign, and he gets more air. It's a dumb, cartoonish joke. Uh-huh. I'm glad they cut it out of the movie. But I was so baffled by the scene because I had seen Blazing Saddles a lot as a kid, you know, as as crass as it is. Mm. And then when it was on TV, it's like, oh, great, I'll watch Blazing Saddles. I don't have the VHS of this yet. And now there's extra scenes in it, and it's less funny and yeah. it's less edgy. It's super weird. It's really bizarre. And yet, I, I'm all for cinematic purity. I always tried to get films in their original aspect ratio. Mm. I tried to get them in their original language, the original version, and, and yeah, I didn't, yeah. didn't like the dubbed as. as 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 straightforward as I could. Mm-hmm. However, because of the era I was raised in, with pan and scan VHS, the quality of the the picture and sound on VHS, yeah. uh, because of watching films on network TV, we had to take I what have, we could get. We have to take what we could get, but at the same time, I have this weird affection for this boldlerized version of cinema that I grew up with. Uh, not that VHS was a boldlerized version of cinema. It was slightly, yeah, but if, that's, it was, if it was cropped, it it's was, all we yeah. have. It was cropped, or you know, the, the fuzzy VHS quality. Or, Some people or say blockbuster just cut so it down awful. to an R rating. Uh, I was going to mention blockbuster video. <laughs> they denied this uh, until they closed, but blockbuster video did edit their videos. They censored their films, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes they were open about it. Like they, yeah. they flat out admitted they cut Showgirls. Like yeah. That was yeah, on yeah, the they, box because everyone and, knew. And indeed, there were a lot of straight-to-video erotic thrillers that were coming out in the boom of VHS. I worked for Roger Corman. I know about all of them. The you know, Body <laughs> of Evidence, 4, 5, 6, 7, 12. And they actually released two different edits of those movies, one for Blockbuster and one for anything that wasn't Blockbuster. <laughs> all the other video stores got the racier version, with the racier covers, by the way. Oh, yeah, very sexy. There was, yeah, like, like more half-nudity on the cover. And uh, on the Blockbuster version, there was a really awkwardly cartoon banner, like, across boobs or something. Oh, God. It, it's, it's the stupidest crap. And yeah, Blockbuster was run by a very religiously conservative person. A really, uh, like I think Mormon organization was a big, oh, big was, I financier. Don't, I don't know if it was Mormon or not, but like it was very that, conservative. Yeah. It was a very conservative yeah. organization that, and they yeah were objected to like sexier content in their videos. If something was released in the United States unrated, they released it as YRV, youth restricted viewing. Kids couldn't see it. Never mind that a lot of children's films from overseas were released without ratings, and so a lot of children's films from overseas were yeah. youth restricted viewing in Blockbuster. It's it's absurd. Yeah. Oh, golly. And and now we're dealing with the same thing with streaming. It's like, well, we're going to put all our trust uh, into the hands of these streaming services to curate all content. Yeah, if you only want access to 100 movies at a time, <laughs> they yeah. put things in, they take things out. It's really frustrating if you want an archive, a store yeah. uh, to, to choose from. And indeed, and indeed, some stuff yeah. is being edited on those streaming services. There are stories yep. of... Yep. Yep. For people were very surprised when uh, they watched... Uh, oh, Disney Plus is out. Cool. Well, let's see how uh, let's see how Star Wars looks on this uh, on this new thing. Who the hell is McClunky? <laughs> What's you hear about that? What, I, what, I didn't. But, I don't. I, I heard a, the word McClunky, but nobody ever bothered a, to explain. They had okay. So this the, one of the more controversial scenes uh, in Star Wars: A New Hope. Ever since the special editions, because they changed it, mm. uh, is the scene between Han Solo and the bounty hunter Greedo. All oh, right. Han Solo. Which, which one of which one of them was shot first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the original cut of Star Wars, the actual cut, Han Solo just murders him, right? Well, it wasn't just he. He was under threat, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's a Greedo is a bounty hunter who is going to take Han Solo to Jabba the Hutt, and uh, Han Solo's like, "Well, I don't want to." Greedo's like, "Well, you are," and uh, 
Han, Han Solo, Solo shoots him. Yeah. Shoots him. Greedo had his gun out. He shot like a split second after Han Solo. But Han Solo technically shot first, and it showed that Han Solo is a tough guy. He's he's yeah. a badass. He's not to be trifled with. He is a pirate. He's not just some nice, wholesome guy. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, the dude was going to take him to Han Solo to be frozen in carbonite and shit, but like, you know, he, well... he Frozen in carbonite, that's, Jabba, that's until this next movie. Jabba yeah. didn't do that, Boba Fett did that because Darth Vader... Anyway, that's the whole thing. Someone would complain if we didn't say that. Anyway, yeah. whatever, he was going to take him to, to Jabba the Hutt to be murdered or fed to the fucking rancor or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Han Solo shot him. It mm-hmm. was in self-defense, but it wasn't an immediate threat to his life, and it read as Han Solo being a different kind of character than we were used to in this kind of cinema. Special Edition comes out, and one of the things George Lucas changes, for no particularly good reason, Greedo shoots a split second before Han Solo, rather than the other way around. It changes so it's the order. So all of a sudden, Han Solo... It seems Solo more only... like self-defense, I guess. Yeah, way, which yeah. is really wouldn't have been a big deal if that was how it originally played out. I but they... it wasn't. It was just an odd change. And I know they also, and this, this weird visual thing, where they like digitally tried to manipulate the image so it looks like Harrison Ford's body was moving out of the way of a shot. They, like, bent his body I digitally somehow. That, yeah. Uh, yeah, so... Um, and then what happened was... Uh, and that was controversial enough. There was mm. shirts that said Han shot first and everything yeah, like that. I remember but, all that. Uh, because, you know, a lot of the changes that were made to the Star Wars trilogy and those special editions were cosmetic. They didn't really affect the characters or story, and that affected the way Han Solo's character responded to a situation. It was mm. a big change. And so when all of a sudden Disney Plus comes out, people start watching Star Wars A New Hope, and now all of a sudden, and I saw I saw, a bit, I saw a bit online, someone posted it online, so I might be getting the order wrong, but now, for whatever reason, just before either of them shoot, Greedo mm. says, McClunky! Like they added a new nonsense word they in added there? a new nonsense word! Why? <laughs> it's so arbitrary if, if and weird. I, okay, I, I haven't seen Star Wars a lot, so this is going to sound very ignorant. But uh, Greedo, he's the green guy with the big black eyes. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And he's got like little. He looks like the, bobs, he yeah. looks like the mugwumps from Naked Lunch. Sure. Uh, he, or rather, he, the mugwumps look like him. But yeah, I, I, yeah well, I, I saw Naked Lunch first. Um, he he only speaks in like alienese, right? Yeah. He sort of speaks in gibberish, and he's subtitled, right? Yeah. So there's already gibberish in the scene. Yeah. They added, they added more gibberish? Someone really thought he needed to say McClunky. And they I, went out does, of their way. Does that word have any significance in Star Wars? No! Else, like, there's no that? McClunky! There's no one! McClunky? Like, that that yeah. sounds like a failed 70s cop show. I, does that sound weird? It's such a weird yeah. shift. So they're doing that, and there's some talk about how they've been removing some of, like, the cult imagery from Gravity Falls as well. Oh, that's right, because uh, yeah. there's, uh, a, like, Masonic Eye on a yeah. character's face. Something like that, yeah. yeah. And it's actually an important plot point. Too. Yeah. I think they might have gone back on that because people complain, but whatever. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, this kind of thing happens all the time. And in the case of Home Alone 2, mm-hmm. uh, Home Alone 2, they cut parts of Home Alone 2 out to fit on television, mm-hmm. one of which was a completely pointless cameo by Donald Trump. And in fact, I was reading, but someone was talking about this, they were talking about how if you wanted to shoot on a Donald Trump property, and he owned a lot of property, especially mm-hmm. in New York, um, one of the rules was you had to give him a cameo. <laughs> Uh, Most people yeah. just cut it out of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Apparently gave, that was they it. They gave him the cameo and then yeah, they edited it out. Yeah, they yeah. edited it out. Whatever. We're sorry, sorry, Donnie. We didn't have time. Yeah. Boom. Like here, they left it in, and then they just cut it out. Why? Because yeah. it's a pointless cameo. 
It's a mild joke. I wish they. The, I didn't even get it when I was a kid. I, I just thought it was CBO, some dude. I wish the CBC had said that. We cut it out because it's a pointless cameo. It's yeah. not. We needed to cut it for time, and that's that. Yeah, we had. They did say that. Or even or, they did say that. We just cut shit for time. It wasn't yeah. important. Or, or even more bravely, because we don't like him. Well, that would be fine too. <laughs> we didn't like him at the time, by the way. Nobody's so, ever liked him. How is he president? I don't know. It's a whole thing. But uh, so yeah. So cutting the, things down for yeah. time. Adding things for time, cutting things down arbitrarily or because you think they might be offensive, these are all sadly still, to one extent or another, Mm. standard operating procedure. Every time you notice it, point it out. Because every time they do it, it's usually stupid. Yeah. Cutting it for time because it's a network, I accept, whatever. But like for any other reason, adding a McClunky, point it out, that's stupid. Anyway. It it proves one thing and one one thing only, that... As much as we like to think of film as being a permanent record, mm-hmm. it is constantly moving. It, every film is moving. And in fact, uh, I'm a film projectionist, and I like to uh, abide by the adage that the projectionist has final cut on every movie. Uh, <laughs> we choose where those edits are, damn it, because we're changing over from one reel to the next. Sure. We ha- we're the ones handling the film. We're the ones proje- uh, presenting it. Uh, if you screw up, all of a sudden, this movie has this weird block of white in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, or, or like this little, like a few frames are cut out here and there. That's us. You know, we're doing that, and it's not to like interrupt anybody's artistic vision. That's just, you know, utility. I was, I was at a screening of a movie at UCLA, uh-huh. and uh, it was a movie. It was a, it was a retrospective screening of movies from China that weren't regularly in rotation, uh-huh. and. There was a chunk in the movie that was a little confusing, and everyone was just like, "Oh, someone made a bold narrative choice here." I feel like yeah. we we jumped ahead in time a bit, and it turns out they they put the reels wrong. And they, oh, just no. they had to turn up the lights. Say, sorry, sorry. If you were confused, that wasn't an intentional artistic choice. We put the two reels ahead first. For sorry, sorry. <laughs> and we yeah. were all just like, "Oh, thank God!" I thought this was. I was trying to work this out in my right. head. It seemed like such a weird choice. Anyway. Is that it? That's it. That's, okay. all, that's all the letters we're going to do. That's all the letters we're going to yeah. do today. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. What an interesting group of letters. Mm-hmm. What, a, what a very heavy group of letters in some cases. I, I, well, I like that people come to us with the heavy I, stuff. It's I actually great. really do. There's a lot of uh, shows, podcasts, YouTube series, whatever, that are it's all flighty all the time. It's mm-hmm. all like, who would win in a fight, Ingmar Bergman or Jean Vigo? And I'm just like, no, we're doing well, the... How much prep time does Bergman have? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I love you so much. Enough. Um, but uh, but uh, no, I love that. I love that people actually have these questions still, and I'm mm. glad we can be a place where you can ask them. So mm. thank you very much. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. You can ask us about anything at all, any part of your cinematic journey, something very specifically we talked about on this show or any of the other shows uh, here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where all of our podcasts live now. Yeah, every every last every man jack of them. Yep, we're we're no longer at, at other networks. It's here, and then we have Patreon exclusive content at the Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, and there you can uh, listen to our reviews of every single nominee for Best Picture in chronological order. We're we're coming up to the end of the 30s, but we got a couple more episodes before we're done with that. I'm going to miss the 30s. Uh, the 30s have been so great, but it's going to be weird when they're all in color. Yeah. Isn't that going to be weird? Yeah, a little Ugh, odd. Super weird. Um, so we got that coming up. Uh, what do we got? We got uh, more Star Trek. Uh, All Our Yesterdays is our Star Trek podcast. We review every single episode of Star Trek in production order. Um, we're we've ta- we're taking that weekly. 
That's, uh, we're going to try to do that weekly in 2020. We might screw up here or there, but we really want to be more prolific on that because we've got a long way to go. Um, whew, boy, do we. And we're going to go in production order, which is going to be really interesting when there are multiple Star Trek shows running simultaneously. I'm looking forward to yeah. when we get to that in 2025. <laughs> um, let's see, what do we got here? Um, and, and other stuff as well, the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie. You can vote for future episodes of The Iron List or Cancel Too Soon. Uh, and we're doing some more commentary tracks. We've established what the next three are going to be, and we're going to do them all this month. And we're going to start mm-hmm. recording one, I think, on Friday. Yeah. Friday is the next one. Uh, that's for the upper tiers. And uh, we got a new Google Hangout coming up, so it's not too late to uh, uh, sign, upgrade. Sign up for that level and hang yeah, out with us. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to do that sometime within the next week. So um, all that stuff is going on, and it's really, really cool. And you're really, really cool. Thank you so much for listening. If you can't afford to subscribe on Patreon, leave us a review, a star rating, wherever you find us. Tell your friends. Follow us on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And um, I guess that's that. Sincerely yours. Bibs and Whitney.